Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Bill and I am here with Steve. Say hi Steve. Howdy. And we are out in the field because we are the field guides. This episode, just as we do in every episode, we choose a nature topic, research everything we can about it, and then take you out into the field to share everything we learned. And Steve, where are we today? Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't ask me that. I'm so, I don't have a good memory. Steve's never been here before. Yeah. But uh, Let's give people a picture of where we are. So right now we are walking through a thick-infested field, <laughs> and we're uh, we're right on the outskirts of a nice wooded area. So yeah, we're on the edge of a meadow, and this is a a meadow that I don't think has been mowed in a long, long time. We're no. about shoulder deep in different grasses. And As the way it should be. I yeah, like that. I agree. Uh, but as Steve said, we need to be on the lookout for ticks. But we are at a site called Kenny Glen, uh, which is a small nature preserve owned by the Western New York Land Conservancy. Uh, we were just accosted by one of their staff. <laughs> <laughs> Came out swinging. No. no, she was very nice. Oh, dear. A little oh. a little doe. No, fawn. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, we just scared that fawn away. <laughs> uh, so they came out because the Kenny Glen site, well, it, it is a beautiful site. Some mature forest. Hunter's Creek runs through a portion of the preserve. And while it is open to the public, it can be a difficult site to navigate. So there's not a lot of trails. Uh, it was not open to the public until you know, relatively recently. Right. When we rolled up, I, I was like, should we be here? It kind of <laughs> seems like someone's like beautiful personal property. Yeah. 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 So if you do want to come to this site, uh, we would recommend contacting the Western New York Land Conservancy because they do guided tours. Uh, they have events listed on their website or they can share those with you over the phone. But uh, we told them that we'd let people know about the site and let people know about them. They do great work in the Western New York area conserving natural space and also uh, cultural heritage of Western New York as well. But why are we here today, Steve? Because we're talking about the red-backed salamander. That's right. So Plethodon cenarius. Plethodon, plethora, okay. many, odonta, teeth. Many teeth. So many teeth. And I think it's, it's a special type of tooth. It's like in the, the roof of their mouth. And this specific genus has many of those. And that's why it was named for it. And the species, you said? Cenarius. And that's ash-colored? Ash-colored. And that's because there's a couple of color morphs to this uh, species, and there's a, there's a dark color morph, and that's more or less what it's named for. But you were saying that you thought that there was a chance that maybe the, um, uh, the red-backed phase right. uh, has a little bit of the gray. So why don't we talk about description here? You know, the, the target species we're looking for today, it's going to be a salamander mm -hmm. about two to four inches long, thin with small legs. Mm -hmm. It com commonly has a red brick stripe down its back. But in some individuals... As you said, there's a different color morph. Right. And that's called... They call it the lead-backened phase. I saw and... the lead-backed or just the lead phase. Oh, I said backend? You did. That's weird. You made up a word. <laughs> so the lead-backened phase. I like that. <laughs> I... Let's go with that. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> We're a little rusty. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so we had a busy spring. We should mention that. Right, right. And, uh, <laughs> and we still have one episode that we recorded uh, during the winter... But things were so crazy with school, and I was preparing for a, a week-long conference that I only just got back from. And so I, I just had no time whatsoever. Yeah, uh, all our listeners out there, give Steve a round of applause because yeah, he's finishing his master's thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are yeah. you officially done? You're officially no, a master? No, no. I'm done with classes now. Okay. You can start calling me the master okay. if you want. But <laughs> I'm just finishing up my, uh, analyzing my data and writing my thesis. Yeah. So, so yeah. we took a little adventure in the spring. We mentioned it on the Facebook page back in March. We took a little adventure in, it was actually late winter, 
Uh, we went up north to Algonquin. Oh, you're right. And we'll be sharing that that episode later. But we wanted to get out in the field now that it's summertime. Yeah. And we felt like three months goes by and then we're like, oh, here's just another episode. <laughs> we wanted to do one where we're like, hey, we've been gone three months. We recognize that. <laughs> and we'll put the spruce grouse episode out um, not as its own month's episode. We're just going to stick it in somewhere. Yeah. So it's not going to be... It'll be a bonus. Yeah, it's going to be a bonus episode. But then again, we just went three months without an episode. So it's hardly a bonus in any way whatsoever. <laughs> All right, but back to the, the red-backed salamander. So as, as you mentioned, there are two different color morphs, mm-hmm. and uh, I think people will be familiar with that if, if they know about, say, the eastern screech owl has a, a gray color morph or a red the color reddish, morph. Right. Where they, they're the same species, just genetically there are, are, what would you say, two morphs that are expressed, right? Right, it's just, it's just um, a different phenotype. It's right. just a different, different look that it can have. And I think that that phenotype, that, that different body color phenotype, is largely driven by bird predation. I'm pretty positive. We can get to it later if I, I'm pretty sure I have it in my notes somewhere. You were saying that there's two color morphs, but I actually found, uh, yep. I found three color morphs. So there's oh. the red striped, there's the, the lead-backed phase, and then I also have the, like the erythristic... Uh, yeah, the lead back end phase and the erythristic. Erythristic. I had to look that up. Yeah, I could not. I could not um, pronounce that. I had to look that, up what it means. But that one, that one's mostly. It looks like the red eft, the right, eastern it, newt. It's all red. Right. It's it's all red. Whereas the eastern newt, it's you know, it's it's almost like an orangey red, and it has the little little um, little reddish circles on, or little uh, black outlined circles on its back. So the the erythristic phase of the uh, the red back has those. Has the dots like the no. the red the the, the red spotted? No, this is that that color phase is an adult. Right. Wait, I'm sorry, I, I lost what you were just. Okay, saying. so you said uh, when you have an erythristic red-backed salamander, all red. Mm-hmm. You said it looks like a red eft. What I saw was that it apparently uh, is to mimic the juvenile eastern newts, which ah, is called the red eft. Right. Yeah. And so that that little 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 newt that people find all along streams and creeks, that's the red eft. And apparently, I don't know if it's you know proven because it's really really hard to prove mimicry in one way or the other sometimes. Sure. But yeah, it, it, it's it, it was an evolutionary oh, potentially an evolutionary um, yeah. pathway there. So. All right, we should say besides when they are all red, mm-hmm. the red-backed salamander. Whether you have the typical red-backed phase or the lead phase, they both have kind of salt and pepper speckling on the underside mm-hmm. so that's a good way to identify them now did you find that they can also be orange backed or white backed no i didn't come or yellow backed i didn't come across yeah, that at all and i found something else that i thought was really cool that there was a study done that looked at differences in behavior between the two phases okay so they found that the lead back phase had a tendency to run away from predators whereas the red backed phase would often stay immobile i did see that they're less likely to flee from predators uh, compared to the uh, lead-backed forms. Yeah. Did it, in your research, did it tell you why? No. Well, they theorized. They said... Was it a hormone thing? No. No? They said the red-backs, by staying immobile, were possibly exhibiting aposomatic behavior. Do you know what aposomatic... I was I, about to ask you to I explain had, what it is. I had to look it up. Sure. I'm like, oh, what's that? That's warning colors. Okay. That kind of ties into your... What you were just saying about, oh, maybe they're the erythristic uh, morph is mimicking uh, the red spotted. Am I saying that right? Red spotted newt? That doesn't sound right. Eastern newt. The eastern newt. The eastern That's newt. what it is. I don't know where I got red spotted from. Yeah, so, you know, bright colored things are mm-hmm. very often letting predators know, hey, if you eat me, you're going to be sorry. 
right? Right. So in uh, there was a study done in 2010. Uh, I don't know who was doing this study, but what they did is they measured different components of salamander blood. So they said that through this, they found that stress levels in the lead phase individuals were typically higher than in the red. So when I had mentioned hormones earlier, yeah. that's what I was going to ask, or that's, that's why I thought of it, was because their hormone levels are way off because they're under more predation stress. Right. And so that's sort of pumping these stress hormones. You got you to wonder though, like, wouldn't that be selected out? I mean, if this phase... It's good to be stressed sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Uh, but, and I also couldn't find anywhere in any literature when you have a, a, a group of eggs of redback salamander eggs, mm -hmm. will you get different color morphs within a single clutch of eggs? Did you ever? Did you no, because I so there was two genetic studies that I left out of my research, mm -hmm. and they were saying that clutches are more similar. Okay. So a clutch of eggs, they're going to be more genetically similar than you know. I wouldn't think. There's that. less variation in yeah. the clutches, but that's not always true. They do form mating pairs, so I don't think that it's multiple. Uh, multiple males with one clutch so maybe yeah. I don't know that that was just one thing they're saying like I said I didn't go into too much detail so you, you don't know no but essentially <laughs> not but what you were saying before with the red eft yeah I also saw this as well as um, so not only does the arif whatever phase the all red the phase, all red phase. Um, potential the erythristic phase is potentially mimicking the red eft I, I found the same thing as you, that maybe the red-backed phase is also mimicking the red eft because the red eft is toxic. Right. I didn't know that. I did, you And you had just said that. I didn't say that, no. Okay. I was thinking it. I didn't know if it was <laughs> until this. It was sort of funny how doing research on this made me a little bit more familiar with the one that I'm more familiar with. Sure. <laughs> right, yeah. at least the one that I see more often. Stepping back. Doing this podcast, it's very humbling because all of these kind of facts quote-unquote facts i've had in my head that i've said to people for years <laughs> that every episode one or two of them comes up and i'm like oh i gotta find out if that is true right and nine times out of ten they're never true <laughs> it was just an anecdote of an anecdote right an exactly anecdote. and i'm just spreading this right. total misinformation right right so, like for this one uh the redback salamander we were talking before we started recording that it's considered the most numerous salamander in new york state if you're going to go out into the woods and look for salamanders chances are this is the one you're going to find mm -hmm. and I looked at other states, and it said the same thing in Vermont, it said the same thing in Virginia, it said the same thing in Connecticut, that the redback salamander is the most numerous salamander. In a couple of states, it said it's the most numerous amphibian. Oh, and yeah. So there was a study that I believe was from New Hampshire, and they were saying that the biomass, or I'm sorry, the abundance, so just the numbers alone, mm -hmm. they were t like two and a half times more abundant than birds. I found that study. And it was it, and they were just as abundant as like rodents and. That's right. Yeah. So the redback salamander biomass exceeded, and it was biomass. Bio. Oh, it was biomass. It so was. it wasn't numbers. Exceeded two times the forest songbirds, uh, and it equaled that of mice and shrews. And they said in areas of good habitat, they're so numerous, they may surpass 1,000 individuals per acre. That's insane. <laughs> and so that's why when we came here, I was like, we better find I them. Know. <laughs> <laughs> so in one of the accounts I read from uh, the New York State DEC. The, mm. our Department of Environmental Conservation, they called it perhaps the most numerous forest vertebrate in New York State. That's incredible. I know. And, yeah. it's, and it's kind of nice to read about an, uh, a species that's doing well. Yeah, you know? exactly. And it's, and it's not an invasive species. Right. You know, it's a native species. I even look back, there was a study from 1911, so over 100 years ago, that even then they referred to it as the most abundant salamander in the U.S. 
Holy cow. So yeah. the Redback Sail Manor's been doing well for a long time. So you can find it throughout much of the east. The range goes west to Missouri, south to North Carolina, and north to southern Quebec and the Maritime Provinces. So a big chunk of North America east of the Mississippi. I was reading, and again, this is a lot to do with genetics again, so I sort of left it out because I didn't want to get into that. That could be a whole episode on its own, salamander genetics. Yes. Specifically for this species could be an episode on its own. Um, but they were saying that there's there's populations of these guys, like some areas that had experienced glaciation versus areas that haven't, and these populations barely interact at all. There's just enough interaction to keep them the same species, so there is some gene flow. Okay. There are some populations that are very, very separated, so you could tell, I mean, you could imagine that they would have, you know, sort of different characteristics. Right. So they, there may be subspecies in that, in that regard, at least. Could you find any, uh, you know, very specific information about geographic distribution of the lead phase versus the redback phase? I really couldn't. I, I didn't, no. It just kind of seemed to be, in some places there's the leadback, and some places Right. Yeah. All right, well, why don't we walk a little bit? Sure, let's see if we can find one. So we're going to head into the woods. Yeah. Oh, speaking of the woods, this is something I want to say before, you know, we potentially forget to say it later, but there are some threats to these guys. Watch out here. Oh. Yeah. So there are some threats to these guys, and one of them is deforestation. And, uh, and one number that I saw from, uh, I believe it was from a little bit of an older study, but it was looking at the southern Appalachians. And uh, it said that due to deforestation and everything that sort of, you know, happens because of that, whether it be like a soil erosion, compaction, um, all those, all those things. They said the the salamander abundance dropped by nine percent, and that's just thinking of the numbers that these guys are. How much oh do you think nine percent is in in this in this area that they're studying them in the Southern Appalachians? It's got to be millions, right? Well, it was one quarter of a billion <laughs> salamanders, <laughs> which is insane. Is that not insane? So when you said millions, right? Yeah, a couple hundred million. That's right. <laughs> So we are in the woods now. Finally. Did you find some good ways to find these guys? Because I have some general tips and tricks. Well, you're looking for an area that's uh, relatively damp. Mm -hmm. And you're looking for an area with lots of woody debris. Those are the two big things that I saw was um, they like um, habitat complexity. So if there's more objects in the environment like rocks and downed logs, that's going to increase their abundance. But also, if you have like an area that's a seep, if there's water kind of going through the area, even though they're terrestrial, um, that does also increase their abundance as well because they need to stay hydrated. And they're actually far more active when it's raining and then their diet sort of changes when it starts raining because they don't really need to worry about drying out right. as much because they can when just like eat whatever they want because they can go wherever they want. <laughs> and I think we need to kind of step back and you said there, you mentioned that they were terrestrial. Yes. I just want to make sure everyone <clears throat> understands that they're an amphibian. So they're going to go through metamorphosis. Typically, if, if you know about salamanders, you know, they typically lay their eggs in some kind of water body. They hatch out into an aquatic larval form, which looks similar to a tadpole. What would you say? It's, it has external gills. It looks like feathers coming out of the back of their head. Right, but um, and did, do, did you want to notice, or did you want to mention with this one that, that yeah, yeah. this genus? That's the coolest part. Okay. Because I didn't know that. I, I feel ashamed I didn't <laughs> know this because, you know, I've been teaching about salamanders for 20 years right, right and what's special about this guy well the plethodon the members of the plethodon genus they just they just skip it they skip yeah. they skip the aquatic larval period that blew my mind when i read that yeah they're like know. next Maybe, did you know about that <laughs> no i didn't know. okay i honestly had no idea i feel ashamed that the most numerous forest 
vertebrate in New York State, I'm like, oh, oh yeah, I, I guess it doesn't have an aquatic form. Because <laughs> I think even before this, you'd be like, well, most of them do, but it turns out that most of them are this one species. Right. <laughs> most salamanders in our forest yeah. don't have an aquatic form. Yes, Apparently, yeah. These guys are, are part of the, the lungless salamanders. Um, so they do most of the breathing through their skin. They have to remain in moist places. And that's like you said, they usually find that under rocks, under forest debris, mm -hmm. except when it's raining. They're breeding right now in June or July. Yeah, this is when they're going to be um, ha or laying their eggs. Uh, and the females will produce 4 to 17 eggs, but the young go through metamorphosis within the egg. Oh, right, right, right. So they can skip that aquatic stage. They don't need that as a habitat requirement like the spotted salamander would mm -hmm. um, or the newt does. So I think that's crazy. They just find, like, under a log or yeah. a crack in the bark, <laughs> they lay their eggs, and sure. metamorphosis happens in there. Now so. we we have to talk about worms. So do you want to do you want to? How about you begin and maybe I'll I'll jump in if I can. Okay. So as far as what they got, they eat because that's what you're talking about, right? No, I'm not talking about eating at all. I'm talking oh. about ecosystem engineering. All right, we'll go for it. From worms? Yeah. When I was talking about the worms, what I was talking about was a study that I found in 2010. It was in population ecology, and it, and what this team looked at, where they were looking, they were examining the possible influence that earthworms have. And earthworms are an ecosystem engineer because they sort of bury through soils and they make all these, these passageways and everything else. And they wanted to know if it had an effect on the behavior of terrestrial salamanders. So what this 2010 study found was that plots with greater numbers of earthworms were associated with a lower proportion of cover objects being occupied by the salamanders. So when there was worms, the salamanders weren't relying on their cover objects as much. So they weren't hiding under they weren't hiding under logs as often and they weren't hiding under rocks as often because they were they were living in the ground. Yeah. In these earthworm Tons. burrows and tunnels yeah. and whatnot. And so what this study was more or less saying was that if they're using these earthworm burrows as refuge uh, um, as refugia. Refugia. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. couldn't say that word. As refugia. Um, so basically it's just saying that the the presence of earthworms may impact you know, population studies regarding terrestrial salamanders and the redbacks in general. But it was also like a really interesting find because if you're if you're if you're only looking under objects when you're doing a survey for salamanders, that's not gonna. You really have to look at your abundance of worms as well in the area because okay. that's gonna have a direct correlation with you the know where you're finding the salamanders as well. Yeah. All right. That kind of goes along with what I was talking about. What was gonna with talk the diet. about with the diet because they consume typically invertebrates and then other critters that live in the leaf litter mm -hmm. uh, and the detritus you find on the bottom of the, oh, the forest floor. I did read Do about it? this, okay. So they prefer the soft-bodied invertebrates, the worms, mm -hmm. okay? And we should say that we were saying that earthworms are horrible because they're oh, typically- Oh, I call them beasts, yeah. They're typically invasive <laughs> species though, right? Sure, sure. Right? But there's not much you can do about earthworms. Yeah, right. So they prefer to be hunting earthworms, especially on cool rainy nights, but during drier, in warmer times, they switch to harder-bodied invertebrates like your ants, your weevils, springtails, ice pots, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But the, a study in 2009 in conservation biology showed that when there's an increase in earthworm populations, which you think would be, oh, that's beneficial to the redback salamanders, that it actually lowered their abundance because when there was a decrease in leaf litter, mm -hmm. because the earthworms are going through all the leaf litter, breaking it down, there's a decrease in leaf litter invertebrates. Right. So their food options, uh, even though there were more <laughs> what they like, their, their broad food options were decreasing. So that meant a decrease in the abundance of salamanders. Right. So, but you're saying when there's 
I wonder if that ties into your study, because maybe when earthworms populations go up, maybe they're just harder to find. I just think that it's, it's just, I think it's providing them more habitat. So I think there's two separate things. There might be, so there might be a threshold where in the initial stages of earthworm invasion or something, and this is not going off the study, the study didn't say this, sure. but I'm wondering, because they didn't mention that at all when I was reading through it. Um, so I'm wondering if there's a threshold here where at a certain point, it's just, it's just providing them with more cover. Right. Uh, or sorry, more habitat. But, and then, I don't know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a time effect or something. Maybe if earthworms are around for long enough and they have greater numbers, they're definitely making but it so the leaf litter doesn't stay around for as long. I like my idea that we've independently <laughs> found these two studies and linked them. Right. And we could say, no, you no. Know, I found both these studies on my own and I didn't link them. So good job to you for <laughs> thinking of it. Um, just talking with you about Maybe that's it. just another project that someone's going to have to do. Yeah. Or maybe There's it's There's your there. PhD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I know I'm working with aquatic plants right now, but <laughs> I want to look at salamanders and <laughs> it's a great idea, believe me. <laughs> All right, so let's start looking for some salamanders. Yeah, yeah, I was actually up. So we're standing around a bunch of, of flat rocks. There's logs. Oh, there's a beetle. Right. Oh, and a slug. I'm going to lift this one up, which is hard to do holding a mic. Yeah, look, I can do it. No. Oh, man, this going. is not a good rock. No. This one's, I think it's like the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> <laughs> think about this, though. The area that we're just looking in, and yeah. I know this is more coincidence than anything, <laughs> but it doesn't have very much cover around it. So why don't, we, why don't we just try to head deeper the deck and go to a place that looks like it has um, complex habitat. Um, and let's see if we can find one there. Right. Not only that, but this is almost like, feels like a sort of a dry area almost. Yeah, that's like true. Like a, a dry, flat, the only cover we really have is tree cover. Gotta be some downed logs somewhere. Oh, come on. There you go. No, I just saw a worm. So I hope the mic's picking it up, but off in the woods there's a nice uh, wood thrush. Oh, yeah. Colin. So we're cutting through the woods and we're on a ridge up above um, a creek right now. This is Hunter's Creek down below us. I was gonna ask if you wanted to describe this place. So, like you said, we have the creek. We're sort of in an area that's pretty full of beech trees, maple trees. We just went by a sorry, cherry. black cherry, right? A black cherry. Yeah. There's a uh, why is it escaping me now? Hop horn beam. Yeah. Right there. Flaky bark. Ironwood. Yeah. The only suckers Which call I... it ironwood. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why common names don't mean it. But I don't. I don't know. I don't know the scientific name for that one either. But there's some big trees here. I mean, look at this oak. Oh yeah. That's there's huge. Monsters. Oh, okay. Here's some stuff. So while Steve is turning over some logs, I'm going to talk about a, a study that I came across looking at the effects of clear-cutting on uh, salamander abundance, specifically redbacks. It was a, a good study because it basically found, it, it described what salamanders need by describing what they, they don't like. So in areas where the soil is really dry, there's not a lot of cover, uh, if the soil is exceptionally rocky, uh, those are all things that are going to lower salamander abundance. And even the height of the tree canopy, if there's a lower tree canopy, usually that's going to lead to lower salamander abundance as well, which makes sense because you're probably going to have less shade. Did you read anything about soil? Uh, I just talked about if, if there's dry, compacted soil, 
with little organic matter or high rock content, you're not going to get a lot of salamander abundance. Yep, and acidity doesn't have too big an effect. What does have a bigger effect than soil chemistry is the type of leaf litter that's on top of the soil. So um, they really do. Nope. They're picking really up a huge like... rock. Ugh. Sorry. Right. Let's just get my point out before lifting <laughs> rocks up. So, like we were saying earlier, they like broadleafed trees a lot more because they like that broadleaf litter. Uh, well, that makes sense. Where they don't like needle leaf litter so much. And it doesn't have much to do, uh, I can't remember the exact study that I was reading it in, but um, it doesn't, they, they compared both soil chemistry and they compared the type of leaf litter. And it turns out that the leaf litter is much more important than the soil chemistry. So it doesn't matter if it's acidic or basic. Mm -hmm. um, it just matters what type of leaves are falling on top of it. And I'd like to look into how different, I imagine it is different, but how different is the invertebrate makeup of litter that comes from broadleaf trees versus needleleaf trees. Oh, right. I imagine it's got to be different. Oh, it's definitely different. Yeah. All right, here's a nice log. Yeah, okay. Oh, it's stuck. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get to move. Oh, Steve did it. Nope, right. there's worms. You see worms? Yeah, a few worms. And we should say that it's been very dry here in Western New York for several weeks, although we did get a huge storm last night. Oh, yeah. So we that got was beautiful. I loved that last storm. Night. Yeah. I was hoping that would kind of wake up the salamanders. Oh, Bill and I don't even live very close to each other, so we both got the storm. It must have been oh, a yeah. big one. It was huge. So while we're, you know, we're still looking where we're getting down closer to the creek. We're kind of on the the floodplain area of the creek right now. Oh, yeah. But uh, a lot of trees around, but not a lot of underbrush. But one thing that I looked at when I started researching for this episode, I wanted to look at forest fragmentation and how it impacted uh, redback salamanders. Because one of the, kind of one of the truths that I had always told people was that uh, no, you guys couldn't see it, but Bill uh, did, did the, the air quotes. Quote. Yeah. yeah, they couldn't see that. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I'd always told people that I thought was true was that if you took all of the deer in a forest and weighed them, and then you took all the redback salamanders and weighed them, that the salamanders would weigh more. Uh, I could not find any studies to back that up. But if the rats weigh more than the deer, then we're in good shape, right? <laughs> yeah, the mice That's and the you shrews. Gotta find. Yeah. you got to find other ways to compare them. But I knew they were abundant. Oh. So... What I was getting at was, I thought there would be a connection between forest fragmentation and uh, decreased salamander population. So forest fragmentation, folks, is the idea that since European settlement of North America, we've taken our formerly large tracts of unbroken forest and we've chopped them up into more of a mosaic of smaller forest patches um, separated by fields, uh, populated areas, and these forests, these pockets of forests, don't function uh, or provide the same benefits to wildlife as large unbroken tracts of forest. So when we were thinking of a new episode topic, I thought, oh, we'll talk about redback salamanders, which, you know, there's so many of them, but obviously fragmentation must be impacting them. But Steve, I looked at, I don't know, four or five different studies, mm -hmm. and they found that they're really, redback salamanders weren't suffering too much from forest fragmentation. Right, I, I think just based on, because I didn't look specifically at fragmentation, I was just, I was only really seeing that 
deforestation was was sort of a big <laughs> right. Issue. If you get rid of the forest, <laughs> <laughs> right? That's not just fragmenting. Yeah, that's deforesting. So, the the most recent study I looked at was 2015, and they mm. said analyses showed that forest fragment area and perimeter did not have a significant impact on salamander abundance, mass, or length. They did go on to say that it's possible there's a certain threshold, like if the the forest fragment gets too small, that could have an impact. Mm. But they said the what they did found was significant was the percent of log cover. Uh, and that's what you mentioned before. Complexity. So yeah. there's got to be, you know, lots of woody debris um, for them to find cover under. The studies so. that I was reading kept calling them objects. And I know I think I had <laughs> used the word objects before, but it was like habitat objects abundance or something. And I'm like, stop calling it objects. Just call it, like, there's <laughs> got to be a better vague. way. Maybe that's like the right way to say it, but I've never even, I've never written about it that way which doesn't mean anything but it's not it just helpful. sounded weird yeah. calling them objects i'm like i get it you mean like rocks logs stuff like that but it just seemed weird having to read you know yeah, habitat like, objects like i said before it was weird to be researching a, a natural history topic and find that oh no the species is doing pretty well right yeah that's uh <laughs> that's definitely a good sign yeah all right huh. so we are not having much luck um, right. Finding here, but we're gonna keep looking. Oh, speaking of it doing well, though, do you want to talk about Kitrid? Okay. Yeah. Why don't we just get into that? Sure. Do you want to say it? Sure. I mean. Uh, I mean the the actual name. Oh, come on. Of the fungus. Uh, <laughs> I mean, do you want to say it? You're yes. usually you usually go out of your way to try to learn to say these things so you can make me look like a fool. <laughs> that is my goal. Yeah. Uh, I spelled it phonetically in my notes here. Sure. So, if you haven't heard of it, and you're into natural history, you'll hear about it soon. The Betrachochytrium dendrobatitis. Okay. Yeah. So that is the fungus, also known as BD, which I think we'll call it from here on out. BD. Yeah. BD, or it's just called the amphibian chytrid fungus. Right. And but this, it's also called. Do you know the other word for it? It's like chytrocytosis or something. Well, it causes. It causes. Chytridiomycosis. Yeah, chytridiomycosis is what yeah. it causes. And do you know the symptoms of that? More or no. less. The symptoms, more or less, are something called hyperkeratosis which is thickening of the outer layer of skin right and folks think about it if you're breathing through your skin like these <laughs> yeah. lungless salamanders are that's not a good thing yeah <laughs> one minute you're a salamander the next minute you're the thing from yeah. the fantastic form <laughs> uh, but not able to breathe right <laughs> but you're suffocating but that's not actually it that's not the suffocation isn't it right. so um epidermal hyperplasia that is it's like a swelling of the skin. It's like an increased number of cells in the epidermis. So it's like, in, um, what would be the word? Like, it almost looks like swelling, I guess. Sure. Yeah, so it's That's swelling, hardening, um, and then ulcers, which I'm not going to explain. And then it says the most prominent change is uh, the osmotic regulation often, le so the osmotic regulation of the skin, which is super important, important for amphibians. Um, and that often leads to cardiac arrest. I didn't read that. Yeah. yeah. So. Osmotic regulation, for those who don't know, that's, uh, what would you say, air? Everyone does it all the time. Air and water yeah, moving through the skin. Without thinking about it, yeah. yeah. So we, every single thing that's alive needs to osmotically regulate things. <laughs> um, which, oh, this isn't important to say. I'll just say it to you, anyway. <laughs> but in fish, it's, it's fascinating because osmosis is completely different, or, or that this type of regulation is completely different in freshwater compared to saltwater. And it just blows my mind the things that fish have to do and other sea or freshwater things have to do. How different they are. Yeah. Yeah, don't, don't keep this in. You don't want to keep that in? <laughs> no, I don't think it's that important, yeah. but I think it was, I had not thought about it because I didn't really work in freshwater or saltwater. 
um, but it's huge. stuff until recently. Oh yeah, like everyone. Completely different. Oh yeah, yeah. for sure. So it's the, like, oh, fish, a fish is a fish, but not yeah, really. Yeah. It's they're totally different. So the, the chytrid fungus has been causing uh, amphibian decline. Thousands of species and all types of ecosystems are in decline. Um, so it's one of the most severe examples of the sixth extinction, mm -hmm. uh, or what some are calling the Holocene extinction. Yeah. And this has big implications for global biodiversity. The Anthropocene. Yeah, that's is right. Is that what Anthropocene? Well, that's what they're debating about calling this geologic time. Right. It's uh, like going throughout geologic history, rock, 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 plastic. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> Dead animals. <laughs> yeah. And hopefully soon again, rock, yeah. rock, 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 rock. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. Uh, so causes, the causes of the, the Holocene extinction or the sixth mass extinction uh, include habitat loss, pollution, introduced species. We don't want to say it's just the chytrid fungus. There's yeah. lots of things going habitat on. Habitat modification, right. habitat loss. Uh, but disease is part of it, and mm -hmm. for amphibians, chytrid is a big part of that. So it was right. first discovered in 1998. And did you know there was a second species discovered in 2013? No. Yeah, so it's Batrachochytrium salamandrivorians, and that's... What's vorians? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Salamandra is referring to salamanders, Fire. though. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I at least got that much out of it. Sure. So uh, that's a, a species that affects salamanders specifically. Mm -hmm. um, but did you come across that some amphibian species appear to have an innate ability to withstand infection? Yeah, and I think there is a swath of bacteria that help them. But the one that I keep I kept seeing that was being focused on was something <laughs> called J. Levidium. Yes, Janthinobacterium. <laughs> and by J, I mean Janth. Thinobacterium. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. actually isn't so bad because half no. of it is bacterium. Right. Yeah, but from, we'll just call it J. Levidium. Yeah. Or wait. Yeah, that's right. J. Levidum. 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 J. Levidum, yes. Um, so that's and, a bacteria. Right, but it's a cutaneous bacteria. Oh, I have an even better word huh. that I learned through this research, an epibiont. Oh, well, hey, that's actually a very good clue as to what... Um, cutaneous means because right. that just means of the skin it's related to the skin and when you called an epi what was that epibiont epibiont so it lives on the surface that's so right. it lives on the skin and so that's really interesting but the thing is that these salamanders they eat skin right and so it enters their digestive system and it actually cultures in their gut and so when they salamanders pass, eat their skin when they shed their skin yes yes okay i'm sure they they would eat anyone's skin <laughs> no, they're monsters um and yeah, so so when they shed their skin, they eat it, and then by eating it, it goes into their gut, and it, it has time to, um, well not time, it, it cultures in the gut, and then as they pass it, they, it kind of enters the environment, it gets on their skin again through, uh, I think it's in salamanders, it's also cloaca as well, right? Sure. Yeah, so I believe, yeah, and, um, and so it sort of recolonizes their skin, because it's got to get on their skin again right but uh did you see the number or how many i mean but just based on some studies how many of these redback salamanders actually have this no. j levitum how much it's like a third or something right so yeah so i did find i was looking for that number because some of the studies in their description seem to say or seem to imply that it was kind of on all the redbacks but then others said that they were finding it in some but not in others and that the species the populations that would succumb to chytrid fungus there would be some individuals some populations that would survive not individuals but populations would survive mm -hmm. and they're saying oh this might be natural selection happening oh it could be yeah. that those that have the j levitum are going to be selected for 
That's really interesting because um, where I came up with that um, one-third number, the, the sample size in that study was actually very low. And so it was, when I say one-third, if I remember it right, it could have been two out of six. <laughs> That okay. They, that they that they um, <laughs> the that they six looked at. <laughs> <laughs> that may have been the case. So it's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's one study I want to talk about where mm-hmm. the study specifically looked at the community of bacteria that lived on salamanders, redbacks. So this is actually two studies. One occurred in '07 and one in 2014. Okay. So they took some salamanders, looked at the bacteria, and kind of figured out what bacteria are living on the salamander. Then they rinsed off those salamanders. And they found that some bacteria were transient, that basically they came from their environment. Mm-hmm. By being in their environment, that's where they got them from. But that some bacteria remained on the skin, even when they were rinsed off. Oh. So like some bacteria stayed there. And they said the core community of bacteria is most heavily influenced by the environment, but not all of the bacteria are dependent on environmental reservoirs. So some bacteria are basically always there on the salamanders, no matter where they're from. But you don't know oh, well that's not saying that if they shed their skin it's still there yeah. so i would imagine that the important part is that they're consuming their shed skin i think that's important because i highly doubt that it's in the new skin right is, is what my that guess w- is that would make sense it's yeah. in, that's what i, I kind of reread that study a couple times and they didn't really talk about that like where did the bacteria come from right 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 but the the cool link that was made was that they've actually introduced J. levitum to mm-hmm. other species of amphibians, and it has helped them fight off chytrid. Oh, yeah. That's so they, really cool. They've said that you could theoretically then take individuals out of a habitat where chytrid has been found, put them into like a matrix, like soil or some kind of habitat where J. levitum is present, they're going to get it on their skin and then re-release them. You're almost like inoculating them. Yeah. And then you release them into the environment. That's really cool. And that could be a method for fighting the chytrid fungus. Um, oh, and we should say okay. that J. levitum can help fight chytrid because it produces antifungal compounds. We didn't say that. And, and I think it's important to say that J. levitum, it doesn't just kill chytrid where it stands. I think the salamanders are still slightly affected by them. They, right. but, so a couple of the things that happens to the salamanders is that they lose a lot of body mass. Let's say if you're infected with chytrid, you lose a lot of body mass. Um, and also, is there like a weird thing that they do called limb lifting? Did you I read heard this? about that, yes. Yeah. Well, either way, they only do that when they're infected. But if you have this J. levitum, if this bacterium in your um, epibiome, yeah. you're A, not going to do the limb lifting, and B, you're going to lose less biomass to a safe level. So you're not, you're still being affected, but... You're going to survive. Yeah, you're yeah. mitigating that negative impact, so which is nice. So the J. levitum, it doesn't make you impervious to chytrid. It yeah. just gets you through it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Let's right. find some. Let's find some. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look in this area. All right. You know, if we found any salamanders, I'd be happy. I'd be shocked <laughs> if we didn't. Got one. All right, Got Steve's one. found a salamander. I'm not actually sure what it is, though, because <laughs> I grabbed it too quickly, and I don't want it to get away. Okay, right. ready? That looks like a redback to me. Woo! We got one. So, oh boy, he's a jumper. He Holy is a cow. jumper. So he is about two and a half inches long. Real thin guy. Yeah. And he is a redback, so it's not the leadback phase. Yeah. Not and too bright though. No. <laughs> no. I, <laughs> not only did he stay I still say, when geez, I was Steve. grabbing him. Not not a brightly colored one. Not though. a brightly colored yeah. one. No. And underneath, he does have that speckly appearance. 
So that kind so, of salt and pepper appearance. Okay, and, and you know, and something I did notice about this guy is that the body is really long and slender. And that, maybe a little bit more slender than, than some other species. Oh yeah, I mean most salamanders, like when I think of a, a spotted salamander, they're kind of plump. Oh yeah, you know? well the spotted, they can get really fat. <laughs> yeah. So apparently their tail, if you look at a cross section, which we're not going to do here, <laughs> but uh, usually it's nearly circular for the entire length, unless they're growing back. Because I guess regenerating tails, they're sort of flattened. Yeah, and like laterally, like yeah. You know, you you present to that as well, kind of common knowledge, but I think there's a lot of people that don't know that they can regenerate their tails. Oh, I, I <laughs> do you know what's funny? That I thought you were referring to the round tail, because when you're keying these guys out, and I um, I've spent time at my cabin keying out different salamanders and stuff. We're trying to tell like duskies from there's a, something else that looks a lot like it, and and some of the difference is like one species might have like a rounded triangular like tail, right? And same genus but different species will have a rounded tail. And they look almost identical, but you just have to look closely at their tails. I think, I'm pretty sure it's a dusky and something that's closely related to the dusky. Come on, bud. Is the dusky in Plethoda? No. No. The dusky's not, but the dusky does eat these guys sometimes. And they're not sure if it only does it in laboratory studies or if it does do it in the wild as well. And you're talking about the the tail being, um, being able to regenerate. I did find one account that actually mentioned that when you find... Is it under me? It's right by your foot. Don't step on it. Where is it? It's like back here. You might have actually gone under your foot. That's why I was wondering if it went under. Yeah. I'd lift that shoe up carefully. Oh, yeah. Yep, it was under it me. So the, the account I read said, when you look at the measurement of a salamander, like the redback, mm-hmm. it's not going to include the tail because so many of them will have regenerating tails. So it's not a reliable measurement to include. Right. So when we said two to four inches before, that's without the tail. Right. Something else that I read was that um, the females, they'll usually only reproduce, did you read this too, every two years? No, I didn't see that. And I think it's because it takes a certain amount of time to store up that energy to be able to have a clutch. And I guess if the female loses its tail, it takes that much longer to be able to reallocate those resources again. I was surprised. I mean, on the one hand, I was surprised by the number of eggs they laid. It's so small compared to what the, uh, the salamanders that use an aquatic larval form. What'd you find? I think it's, what was it, 2 to 14, I said? I can't remember. Yeah, so... (laughs) I hardly listen. (laughs) Steve doesn't listen to me. He's too busy reading his notes thinking about what he's going to say next. (laughs) Yeah, and then I say the exact same thing you just said. (laughs) So, here, I'm going to find it. It says they lay 4 to 17 eggs. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, compared to, I mean, what would you say? uh, The spotteds? Yeah, I mean, dozens. Huge, huge egg masses, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you're in a terrestrial Well, water versus land seems like it would definitely, there would be a a big difference there. Why don't they just lay lots of little clutches, you know? Right, right. But it is also a very tiny salamander, too, Mm -hmm. compared to the the spotted. Sure. And one thing I noticed when it opened its mouth, I noticed that its small tongue didn't fill the floor of its mouth <laughs> really <laughs> yeah that's one of you the description eyes, characters <laughs> really I, it talks I know, about the tongue apparently but it, it probably with a deceased a deceased sale yeah a deceased one yeah. um and then i like uh and this is just something that i ended up writing down because i thought it was like way too much information so i thought it was kind of funny <laughs> they're they're talking about the finger lengths and they're like the order from longest to shortest is third finger second finger fourth (laughs) finger first finger and then they also talk about it with the toes too which are slightly webbed which is interesting i wonder if they use the webbing for climbing because you'll see that in some arboreal uh lizards and whatnot is that they'll have a little bit of webbing to sort of help them like snag onto things 
Maybe it's also for uh, surface area too, you know, for uh, osmotic regulation. You have more surface oh, area. Skin surface I wouldn't area. even think about that. I mean, you're probably wrong, but <laughs> well, they don't do a lot of climbing. Yeah, but what if they're climbing over something to get to? I don't, I don't know. I like my idea better. Yeah, <laughs> you would. <laughs> don't step on them. Oh, okay. All right. Do you have anything else? I don't think so. I sure hope I don't regret it. But <laughs> I don't think I have anything more. Well, if you do have something else. We can add it into the episode now. Sure. <laughs> All right. So uh, I think we should thank the uh, Western New York Land Conservancy for not kicking us out of their property. Yeah, that was nice of them. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad she came out and talked to us. Yeah, that was me nice. too. Rachel, she's a nice girl. Yeah. And their uh, their website is something you want to check out, especially if you live in the Western New York area. Doing good work. Mm-hmm. A lot of land trust, land conservancy groups are. But that is it for this episode. We want to thank everybody for listening, for sticking with us after uh, our long absence. Mm -hmm. Please leave us some reviews on iTunes. Recommend us to your friends. And if you have ideas for future episodes, please send those along as well. Definitely. And, And another thing, if you like the podcast and you want to see things that we're posting, Bill and I, we tried to post before and we've definitely sort of dropped off a little bit. But on Facebook, definitely subscribe to our notifications. And then so when we do post something, which is pretty rare, but... It's usually related to the episode, just a little extra information that, that sort of really complements uh, what we're already talking about. Definitely uh, subscribe to that so you see that stuff. And then, like Bill said, definitely recommend us to your friends or, or share share the episode for us. All right. Yeah. Well, Steve, see you next time. Was that too, was I, was I, was I begging too much? No, I don't think so. Yeah, well. All right, I'll see you next time. <laughs> no, hold on. <laughs> well, right. thank you, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next time.